Hello, and welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a podcast about the new Star Trek Discovery TV series by two moms who write about autism and who happen to also be Star Trek fans. Together, we talk about the new series, how it relates to previous versions of Star Trek, and any autism issues that we happen to see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth, and with me is my co-host, Vicki. Hey, this is Vicki. Together, we are Moms Going Boldly. We're talking about The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. And we're seeing Michael Burnham starting to fit in with the Discovery crew. The Klingons are back. And we love the spinning saucer section. Today, we are talking about the episode, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. And we mentioned in the last discussion that this was kind of a disturbing title. Do you think the episode lived up to the title? Absolutely. I agree. It was it was it was disturbing. So we start this episode with a really interesting opening sequence. I really liked it. You know, we see this this landscape of dark blue color with lightning bolts all over it and it's shimmering and it's you're wondering what kind of alien world this is, and it's the replicator making Michael Burnham a new uniform. I thought the graphics looked great, and I thought it was a very creative perspective to start off the story. And then we see her roommate, Tilly, who is still giving off the autism vibe. I love it. She's still so delightfully socially naive in some ways. Yeah. So she brings in a suitcase of some kind, that turns out to be the last will and testament of Captain Giorgio for Michael Burnham, and Michael Burnham immediately shoves it under the bed. I don't blame her. I mean, I'm sure she feels... I'm sure this will will was made long before she was a mutineer, <laughs> as, much as, I, as much as I hate that word. <laughs> what I found interesting, though, is that denial is not very logical. But she's, she's back and forth. She's back and forth on everything. I'm finding her really difficult to figure out. And I think that's a really important observation. This blend of the Vulcan education with her human intuitive responses is going to make for a very interesting character. We find out that Michael Burnham is assigned to determine what makes the strange monster that attacked all the members of the Discovery sister ship and killed them all and killed the Klingons, what makes it so strong and so invulnerable. And I think it goes to kind of confirm what the question we asked last week about context is for kings. Did that actually mean, does the ends justify the means? Because that does seem to be Captain Lorca's sort of reason for being. But she's assigned to study this creature and learn what makes it strong and scary. And then meanwhile, we go back to the Klingons and we discover that there's infighting and there's factions developing and oh look there's a little bit of romance going on between our main Klingon Vok and his sort of second-in-command Laurel and I have to tell you um, as I'm watching this again so we're seeing the Klingons again for what is the the third time now because we saw them in a Vulcan Hello, and then we saw them in the Battle of the Binary Stars, and so now we're seeing them for the third time. 
Right. And I think I have a cynical theory as to why they are so different. Okay. Because I was perfectly happy not seeing... I know the whole thing is about the Klingon War, but I was perfectly happy not seeing them in the last episode. You know, I was too. (laughs) (laughs) So here's my cynical theory. Do you remember or do you recall hearing anything about a lawsuit that Paramount and CBS filed against a crowdfunded fan film? I look oh yeah. I I kind of followed that story because A, as a Star Trek fan I was interested and B, as an attorney I was interested And one of the steps that took place in that case was something called an amicus brief, which is essentially a legal argument that's filed by a party who's not actually involved in the lawsuit, but who has something that they think could be helpful to the court in making a decision. And the amicus brief was on how Paramount and CBS could not claim copyright over the Klingon language because the Supreme Court had previously ruled that languages couldn't be copywritten. And my cynical take on this is what if CBS said, okay, you know what, we're going to establish full and complete control over our intellectual property, the Klingons, by making them entirely different than they ever have been before. That could be. And I just, I have, that, that makes, I mean, I didn't follow the lawsuit. I remember hearing about it, and it was a while ago. But, yeah. Well, this is just a theory. <laughs> I just don't like them. I don't like it. it. Their scenes are so long. It takes so long for them just to have a conversation. I'm I'm hoping at some point they're going to go to the hunt for Red October language method. But we don't have to read. So we don't have to read everything they're saying. It just takes forever. <laughs> so is this the this is the last episode you've seen so far, right? Yes, because I didn't want to watch the next one because we didn't do this one yet, and I didn't want to confuse myself because I'm easily confused. <laughs> I totally understand. I have not. I, I didn't want to get too far ahead either. But I can tell you, there's light at the end of that tunnel, my friend. My God, I hope so. Plan <laughs> <laughs> scenes are just so long, and they're doing nothing. They're just talking, but it takes forever. I agree. It 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 does slow down what has been otherwise a really well paced story. Yes. So here we are in the story. We've got Michael Burnham doing her research in Captain Lorca's Frankenstein laboratory. And then Captain Lorca gets notice from Starfleet that their most important dilithium facility is under attack by the Klingons. And all of the ships that they had dispatched to protect the facility have been destroyed. And Discovery is the only ship that's close enough to be able to stop this facility from being eradicated. So they have to engage the spore drive, which is still not perfected. Lieutenant Stamets, I do like him, by the way. I like the character. I like the actor. He's really growing on me. So Lieutenant Stamets... I do this week, yeah. yeah. I do this. So Lieutenant Stamets is explaining, you know, the farther you have to go, the greater the probability of it not going the way you expect it to, and the stability of the drive and how it works to how far you have to go. Anyway, so, so, but Captain Lorca says we have to go, so they do, and I, I really like... The spinning saucer. I did too. I just, I thought, you know what? That's really cool. And I have no idea how it relates to the generation. Maybe it's unique to the spore drive. Or maybe... I don't know. Yeah, but I I really like that sort of spinning saucer thing as you're getting ready to... They're getting ready to do their spore leap. And, of course, the leap goes painfully wrong. They end up in the corona of a sun, nearly cook themselves... 
and they have to get out quickly, and it's, it's a, a point of frustration. Meanwhile, Commander Landry, who is the security chief on the ship, comes in and is essentially insisting with uh, Michael Burnham that they figure this out because it's really important to Captain Lorca and they have to do it. So Commander Landry releases the creature. She wants to stun it into unconsciousness or something so they can cut a claw off and figure out what it's made of. And this fails badly. Yes. What did you think of the death of Commander Landry? Very happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> Why was that? She, she, another cowboy. She was a cowboy. She was annoying every step of the way. She wouldn't listen. I was actually. And look what happened. I was actually really disappointed that she died. I was not at all. I was. I was glad. I found her annoying as well, and I agree <laughs> with you in every step of the way. She was not a good leader. She was no. dismissive. She was... I, I agree with everything you said. However, I would have loved to have seen the evolution of the relationship between those two as they came to better understand and respect each other because that character arc would have been really cool. But do you think... See, I don't, I don't know that I, they would ever get to that point because there would have... There definitely already was some jealousy because she was all for the captain. It was everything for the captain. So it, whether they were lovers or not... I'm sure that that's what she wanted to be. Right. And she would do anything for him. And even if it's cutting off the hands of an alien before you get to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Meanwhile, Michael Burnham is determining that this creature is actually a giant tardigrade. At which point my little boy just went into, you know, spa <laughs> spasms of joy because he loves tardigrades. <laughs> And was very unhappy about how badly the tardigrade was being treated. Yes. Um, Michael Burnham is determining that this is a very passive creature. It is not an aggressive creature. And the only reason it was dangerous is because it was defending itself with some pretty outstanding defense mechanisms. But that wasn't its purpose or right. its motivation. So there's already a conflict there. Now, here's an interesting thing that I would really love to hear your opinion on is that Michael Burnham brought Saru in to oh, test. I have that written down. I, I know. What did you think of her bringing him in to test his threat ganglia on the creature? This, she just, again, this is how much she confuses me. She has so much empathy for an alien, which she should, has no concern at all about part of the crew who she should be trying to win over about using him as a barometer. And when he realizes it, she doesn't even say everything I said was true. Yes, I did use you to test his, his threat level, but what I did, my apology was sincere. She doesn't even bother to say that. She just says, I had to do what I have to do. And I just, I don't understand her <laughs> at all. But you could see at that moment why Saru feared her and Captain Lorca. Absolutely. Both Absolutely. very willing to use people to achieve their ends. Exactly. But on the other hand, she has so much empathy for this alien. And I'm not saying she shouldn't because... She obviously figured out the alien is in pain or whatever when they're using it for navigation. It's a very interesting set of ethics that she has because she doesn't understand that even though asking Saru in and using him and his threat ganglia as an experiment is a kind of unkindness, she doesn't equate that to the physical pain that the tardigrade eventually endures when they discover that the tardigrade is... The key to running the spore drive. Right. And it's, 
doesn't actually, make any sense. it's very Vulcan, actually, if you think about it. I, well, I thought it was Vulcan in the way she treated Saru, but I don't didn't think it was Vulcan. That's what I mean. She she has a human side and a Vulcan side, but they hers about on her human side seem to be over the top. Yes. Uh, I don't know how else to explain it. Um, the things she cares about on her human side, emotions are over the top when she behaves like a human. But, you know, like Saru, she should be trying to win him over. He's not happy about her being there. I know she probably doesn't care about that, but the least she could have done was said that her apology was sincere. And I think it's even something maybe more basic than that, which is something that the Vulcans are, you know, they have a history of not understanding, which is the common courtesies that promote good working relationships. Right. Spock struggled with that in the original series. Do you remember the episode, The Galileo 7? It's the one, the one where they were... They were in the shuttlecraft with a whole bunch of crew members, and they had to crash land on a planet full of really tall guys in bad fur costumes. Yes, yes. Right? Spock is really misunderstanding the need for the emotional connection with this crew in order to help them do their jobs well. Yes. He's saying, do your job well, but... oblivious to the fact that they need emotional support and leadership to be able to do that. Right. And so we're seeing the same thing here with Michael Burnham, which is really interesting. Yes, it's confusing to me, but yeah. As we just alluded to, they figure out that the tardigrade is the key to controlling the spore drive. And I really thought that there was this amazing sort of acting juxtaposition when they figure out oh this is it this is how we do it it's going to work it's going to be great and they're really excited and then they turn around and realize that it's causing this creature a lot of suffering and i liked the complexity of that you know we went from a really good high the kind of high that we're used to on star trek oh look our intellect figured out the problem to a really important low that in the best episodes of star trek we saw oh this solution is complicated and maybe not the best one. Uh, I also have to say this: there was the scene where we saw the Klingon Vok and Lorel. They went back to the Shenzhou to retrieve equipment that they needed to repair their ship. And I thought it was fascinating. They'd been sitting there for six months. They've never gone back to... The ship was damaged in the Battle of the Binary Stars. And while the rest of the Klingons are all fighting, that ship that had the cloaking device was still sitting there in the wreckage of that battle for six months. I thought that was bizarre. (laughs) And such an indicator of the lack of cohesion in the Klingon Empire, which you mentioned in the very first episode about those 24 houses all disconnected from each other. Right. It really drove that home. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This ship could have been so instrumental in defeating the Federation, and they left it there because it yeah. wasn't their problem to deal with. No, but then they went back to the... The Shenzhou. Uh, but you're talking about it was sitting there for six months or the other one? Both of them were sitting there for six months. Yeah. So the sh- they went to the Shenzhou, which they objected to going to because the Shenzhou was the ship of the people who killed Takuvma. But I thought it was strange that Takuvma's ship was left there by the rest of the Klingons. The only ship in the Empire with a cloaking device. But I loved the scene when they entered the Shenzhou and it's open to space with the debris floating around. I loved how dark it was. We had talked originally 
when we were first, you know, the first and second episode about how the Shenzhou's bridge didn't really feel like a living room. Right. But boy, was it much warmer when it was peopled yeah. and working. <laughs> and the and the absence of the people and the, the its derelictness was so well presented. I, the way it looked was amazing. What did you think about this coup that took place on Takuvma's ship where Vok was expelled and the new Klingon Cole essentially took the ship away from Vok and exiled him onto the derelict Shenzhou. What did you think of that coup? Well, it happened pretty quickly. I mean, it wasn't, you know, they just reunited all the houses. It's certainly setting things up for some interesting internal revenge stuff. Right. And then Laurel came and saved him. And it was fascinating, as she said, she was going to take him to the matriarchs. And he was going to have to give up everything. Everything. So I don't know what that means. They get the tardigrade to run the spore drive. They're able to show up at the dilithium facility and stop the attack by the Klingons and save most of the workers at the facility, including children and families, which was very right. heavy-handed. <laughs> their, their use of the children and families crying and being afraid. Yeah, Star Trek the dark thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And what did you think of the, the battle strategy that Captain Lorca used? Oh, of have, yes. I've seen that used before, haven't we? Sort of the waiting waiting until they... And then they warped out and left explosive devices behind that destroyed the ships all at once. Yeah. It looked so familiar. I thought it was good, but it I looked so familiar. Well, and it, it told me that perhaps the Starfleet ships did not have the necessary shield technology to hang in a firefight with the Klingons. Oh, probably not, especially this ship, which was supposed to be a science ship. Yeah. And it also told me that potentially the weaponry wasn't strong enough to damage the Klingons through their shields. Probably. So that they had to use more creative means of destroying the ships. Or, alternatively, Captain Lorca was simply exploring new ways to use the spore drive in a offensive way, as opposed to a defensive way. That could be too. So then we, uh, we're successful, we've got this very sort of um, bittersweet kind of resolution. We know what the tardigrade can do, we know it's sweet, we know it's gentle, we know it can run the spore drive, but it also is badly damaged and injured when it's used that way. And then right. we rejoin Michael Burnham in her quarters, and she decides to open up the box that yeah. contains the last will and testament of Captain Giorgio. What'd you think? Well, I'm glad she opened it, so that was a little sad. And what did you think of the holographic projection of Captain Giorgio and her message for Michael Burnham? Again, I don't understand where they're getting this technology from. <laughs> And I'm still going to stick with, and maybe, maybe it's because I've been watching Enterprise, so I have time travel in my head, but I'm still sticking with the time travel and changing of history somehow. Unless they are an elite, I don't know. I just don't know where, even transporting from one um, part of the ship to the other, we didn't see that until... That was next generation. Next generation, but I know... It was it was really in DS9. They they were always transporting people to sick bay from one place to the other. But Star Trek in the original series, they had to go back to their beam out spot 
to be transported. Correct. I don't recall them ever, you know, doing what we would call now a site-to-site transport on the original series. It was always, you have to be in one place, you have to be together. And even in the uh, first of the rebooted movies, they had some significant restrictions on transporting, which is how Spock's mom was lost. Right. It does seem incongruous, and I hope that they will do us the courtesy of giving us some kind of explanation, whether it's the time travel explanation or whether it's, you know, we have to dumb down our our technology in order to beat the Klingons or something. I actually really wondered about this scene with Captain Giorgio and her messaging to Michael Burnham and I couldn't figure out how it really played into the story with the exception of the one line when she said take care of the people you care for right and I yes. thought okay this is about the tardigrade it is that's that but but that was a, you don't care for anybody else an awful lot of screen time and dialogue <laughs> right for I know. Be kind to animals. <laughs> right. But maybe it, like everything else in these in this serialized story, maybe it'll play out down the road in a way that will help the scene be more impactful. Could be. There, there are some things like that that I don't really understand why they take so long. So did you like the episode? I, I did. I did. But there was one part where she, where Michael said, and I think it was to Lowry, that they're judging a species, species on one past incident. Yes. Relevant to her, that everyone is judging her on one past incident. Do you think but that's I don't what... I think that she thinks it's relevant to her. I think it's relevant to us when she says it, but in her mind, she's just talking about this alien. I agree. I don't think she realized it was for her, though Landry jumped on it right away and said, oh, this right. isn't about you. Right. I guess that raises a really interesting question now that you mention it, because the tardigrade was defending itself. Mm-hmm. Was Michael Burnham defending herself when she committed mutiny? She, she thought she was defending everyone. Yeah. Including herself, yeah. In a way, it is analogous, though it doesn't seem like it at first blush. And the captain, I know you, you're hoping that he has the Starfleet stuff, um, morals, <laughs> and but I don't know. This is not a show about the captain. This is the first show that isn't centered around the captain. So it could be possible that we do end up with a bad captain. Uh, I agree. I think it is and, very and possible. He, and like he said, he studies war. A man who studies war, what does a man who studies war do when there's no war? Yes, what's his purpose? Excellent question. He creates more conflict is what I would think. Because that's what he knows. Right. So I'm not I'm not sold on that he's going to be the Star Trek, you know, Captain Morals. I think that I have to have, a, not a bad captain, but a captain we're not used to. And, you know, it's funny because we previously had discussed how somebody had said Saru was the Vulcan of the crew, but I think Saru is more, stay with me here, the Jiminy Cricket of the crew. Could be. Because he's sort of like the conscience. Yes. And I think he's going to be our ethical compass. More than anyone else. Yes, you're right. And you know, at first, I was willing to kind of blow him off a little bit because I had faith in Lorca and Michael Burnham. And now I'm thinking, no, actually... I think he may be the ethical pivot point here. I think so, too. So was there anything that you didn't like in the story besides the Klingons? Yeah, I think we covered that. Yeah. <laughs> no, the rest, of it, the rest of it I liked. I did. I did, too. I thought it was, a, I think it was a well-told story. It had good conflict, good character development, character de- development that wasn't heavy-handed. It was natural and flowing with the story and giving us more 
insights to who these people are and what their motivations are. I thought it was an, a, a worthy entry into the series. Yeah. And I'm starting to just really be very happy with the series. I'm, I am liking it. I do like it, yeah. But the Klingons are killing me. Yeah. And if, <laughs> if I could do something about that, it would go much quicker. Because the rest of it I like. It's just getting through the Klingons. And I also really like how it was a discreet story. It had tendrils reaching out to other stories, but it was still a story unto itself. Right. We didn't have to wait till the next episode to get a resolution of something. We had it right there. Standalone episodes are good once in a while, yeah. So the next episode is called Choose Your Pain. And as I understand it, this is the episode where they're bringing back Harcourt Fenton Mudd. Oh, okay. I did. I read about. I read he was coming back. It'll be really interesting to see how that character plays out because yeah. in the original series he was full on comic relief. Yeah, yeah. And with this sort of dark series, is mischief going to hold up? No, I have to imagine it's going to be a totally different character. I could be wrong. It would seem disconnected if he was the comic relief in the same way that the character was in the original series. Nonetheless, it's kind of fun to have him be brought back. Yeah. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find me at autismmom.com. That's autism-mom.com. You can find me at takingstep.com. And we hope that you will join us for the next episode of Moms Going Boldly. The music used on Moms Going Boldly is entitled Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. It is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. And please follow Ross Bugden on Twitter, at Ross Bugden.